Hey everyone, and welcome to the 17th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Today I'm going to be talking to Raymond J. March. He's a research fellow and director of FDAreview.org at the Independent Institute and is an assistant professor of agribusiness and applied economics and a faculty fellow in the Center for the Study of Public Choice and Private Enterprise at North Dakota State University. He received his master's and doctorate in agricultural and applied economics from Texas Tech University and has been assistant professor of economics at San Jose State University and Adam Smith fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research examines the public and private provision and governance of healthcare in the United States. His focus is in pharmaceutical markets. Dr. March's scholarly articles have appeared in such journals as the Journal of Institutional Economics, Journal of Entrepreneurship and Public Policy, and International Review of Economics. His popular articles have been published in The Hill, Real Clear Health, and elsewhere. Today we're going to be talking about the coronavirus and a little bit more about how the FDA has responded and certain regulations that have complicated the process in solving the problems at hand. So here he is. Here's March. Thank you so much, Ray, for joining me today. Uh, if you want to just introduce yourself really quick, that would be great. Sure. I'm Ray March. I'm an assistant professor of economics at North Dakota State University. I'm also a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Public Choice and Private Enterprise. And in addition to that, I'm also a research fellow at the Independent Institute where I direct FDAreview.org. Awesome. So on, on FDA review, um, one of your recent articles kind of talks about this false binary that we, we've been seeing between, you know, choice between whether or not we save the economy or we save these people who have the coronavirus. So can you talk a little bit about that and um, what and how you believe we can fix both of those at the same time? Yeah, the current narrative behind whether or not we need to shut down the economy and keep it shut down, possibly even shut down more of the economy in an effort to keep the curve flattened and to keep more people from getting infected, more people from getting sick. People tend to, people like you said, tend to view those as binary, right? Do we make a trade-off between sacrificing the economy and sacrificing public health? And I don't think that's the right way to look at it. Mm. It's One of the assumptions that goes into this idea of flattening the curve is that the curve is flat. You can't move it. So me as a health economist, my first question is, why is the curve flat? Why can't healthcare expand to meet the needs of people during pandemics? Or why can't we get more ventilators or hospital space or even testing for COVID-19 and things like that? And by and large, when you try to answer the question, why don't we have more healthcare? Why is healthcare not functioning the way we think it should? It usually goes back to regulation. Right. And what I've been trying to look at just in my broad research related to the pandemic is, one, where is this regulation coming from? How does this regulation impact how we're dealing with the pandemic? But two, I think more importantly, if we see instances where things are less regulated or even deregulated, or we lift a regulation that's in place, do we see progress? Mm -hmm. Is there more testing? Are there more ventilators being produced? I think along that manner. And by and large, my research says yes. In, I, I believe it was October, you wrote an article about how there was this breakthrough Alzheimer drug. And um, mm -hmm. you, you were talking about how the drug approval process was coming into question. Can you talk a little bit about that drug approval process and how it's coming to, like how we're starting to see that it's causing problems today? Sure, the article you're referring to was for basically the only Alzheimer's drug we've been able to find that actually can reduce or prevent the symptoms of the advancement of Alzheimer's. Right now you have some treatments for that disease, but really what they do is just halt the progress of it so they can slow down the delays of Alzheimer's, we don't have one that actually can reverse some of the symptoms. 
And Biogen developed one that, at least in clinical trials, was actually doing that. And initially, it had gotten to phase three, which is the largest and most time-consuming, costly, and demanding phase of the FDA's review process. It got there. It, by all signals, was not going to pass this phase. And then it abandoned hope. But then what it ended up doing was going back and looking through some of its data that it got from previous trials. And they said, well, actually, no, if you combine these data sets and you look at these clinical results, the drug is actually working. But the concern was by combining those data sets, that's not really everything you need to get through phase three of a trial. So you have Biogen, the producer on one side saying, actually, no, this is the only drug that's been helping people with Alzheimer's. And you have the FDA saying, no, we don't really make allowances for the kind of data you're combining. And there was a back and forth, of course, saying, okay, well, is the FDA going to allow for emergency use of this? Is the FDA going to start to break its protocol saying, okay, we'll let it get through or start to get, or at least go back through phase three again after it initially wasn't allowed to. And so there was a back and forth. They did eventually allow Biogen to reapply and try to get the drug through. It's still in the process right now. But what that does is open the door, if you will, for alternative forms of treatment. So instead of going through what most drug companies have to go through phase three, which is thousands of participants, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? It can be nine months to complete this. Instead, they're saying, what if we have more access to big data or alternative forms of evidence that comes through in clinical trials? Can that sort of bypass some of the steps of phase three? Can that even substitute for the most demanding part of the approval process? Going to what we're seeing right now, I I assume you mean Mm COVID-19, right? Yeah. So going right now, what we've seen the FDA do really for the last two or three weeks is say, if you have anything that's promising for helping with COVID-19, can help treat COVID-19, allows us to test easier for COVID-19, possibly lets us get more ventilators onto the market more quickly. What they're saying is we're going to grant emergency access, which is the FDA's way of saying it's not going through the full approval process, so it doesn't get our full approval but given we're in a pandemic, we'll allow it to be used, or we're not going to halt the progress of doctors prescribing drugs and issuing tests and things like that. So there is a corollary in the sense that the FDA is granting exceptions to its own rules. Now, how that's going to apply after the pandemic, and when they're going to say, look, all these drugs and advancements came to the market and that helped us curb COVID-19, well, producers come along and say, yeah, but what about all these other conditions, right? What about cancer more broadly? What about Alzheimer's, right, or some of these other conditions we don't have a lot of treatment for. Right. You allowed easy access through COVID-19. Why not these conditions? And I think that's going to really be instrumental through what happens for the drug approval process and the pharmaceutical market more broadly for the next couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about how the Right to Try Act might apply to this situation and if, if there's any way that people can um, actually try to access these medications that they wouldn't be able to otherwise? Sure. The Right to Try Act is a law that was signed in by President Trump, at least nationally, in 2008. It was a state-level legislation basically for 47 or 43 states, excuse me, before 2008. Right to Try Act is a law that allows, if you will, people with a terminal illness to go to a drug producer and say, you have an experimental medication, right? It's not approved by the FDA, but it shows some promise. I'm terminally ill. Existing treatment methods don't exist or they are not working. I'd like to try it. And then if the patient can get the approval or the agreement of their doctor and the drug provider, they can use that treatment. Whereas normally the FDA will have some programs where they'll say, okay, if you're terminally ill, we'll grant you expedient access. But what the right to try law does, it's say, we don't need the FDA's approval in this process. We just need the physician and the drug provider. If they're willing, they can help 
patient. Mm. That's been going, I mean, right to try laws go back to, I mean, 2001, if you want to count the grassroots movement, but really they've been becoming more popular for about the last eight or nine years, at least from a legal standpoint. Right now, what we're seeing is, especially with regards to a vaccine, so most people think we're not going to have a vaccine for COVID-19 for one and a half to two years, and that's if the FDA allows expedient access. Right. So that's the fastest the FDA could get it onto the market. And obviously, two years of pandemic-like conditions, unless something else happens, is terrifying, mm-hmm. right? both from a public health and from an economic standpoint. But what I tried to write about in that article was saying, well, how in the world can you get access to experimental medication? In this case, it would be a vaccine without having to go through that process. And really the only options we have are the FDA allows access to it. It, Again, that's two years away. Mm -hmm. Or you could have doctors and drug providers, in this case, maybe Johnson & Johnson, who's working on a vaccine right now and has clinical trials already going, could say, okay, well, you are a demographic that could be particularly hard hit, or you have a pre-existing condition, or you're elderly. Maybe we want to let you try the vaccine because you're at a high risk, you're a high risk demographic. And the tricky part about that is, is that right to try is not really for preventative care. It's not to vaccinate people. It's if you're terminally ill, you're supposed to have access to this. Mm-hmm. So the question with that is, given that the FDA won't step in and say, no, that's not what the law is for. Well, doctors come along and say, no, it's technically not for terminal illness, but you're at a very high risk of dying if you contract coronavirus. It might be in your best interest to use this. Mm-hmm. So we'll write to try come in and say, okay, well, we can't wait two years. People are in danger now. Let's distribute treatment, even if it is experimental. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Some surveys say that people are very much interested in that. Others do not, but it's still very early on in the process. Physicians are going to be willing to do it. And assuming we liberalize or assuming the FDA stays out of the way and lets the law take place, I think you could see a market for that. And now um, with hydrochloroquine uh i think it was actually this morning rick bright he he was let go because um he was calling for more testing and more um stuff like that on hydrochloroquine are there any studies that show that hydrochloroquine is safe or is there actually a need for that is there kind of like this um because the fda loosens restrictions people think that it's not as safe as it is that gets tricky. So the drug you're talking about right now, that's already been approved. Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not an experimental treatment. It was previously approved years ago to treat malaria. So in terms of just the formal approval process, it's safe to take. Right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have received FDA approval had it not been safe to take. The question now is that some people through what's called off-label drug prescription, which is it's approved for one thing, but doctors find an alternative use for it and they start prescribing it for something else. Mm-hmm. And a lot of drugs, 10% of drugs basically are used for off-label reasons. So that's fairly common in the U.S. market. But the question is, is that particular drug going to be used effectively for treating COVID-19? And there's mixed results, right? Some have had a lot of success. Others have not. But broadly speaking, the FDA has already approved the drug for emergency use, Mm -hmm. which is something we talked about before. It's not fully approved, but they're going to say, yes, go ahead and prescribe it for that reason. Now, I think years down the road, will people say it's an effective treatment for COVID-19, probably, just from the data and all I've seen on that. But right now, more importantly, it's being processed through a decentralized effort. Right? The FDA is not coming in and saying, nope, more testing, or like the guy you were talking about, right? No, hold back. We need to test it a little bit more because the FDA recognizes this is an emergency situation. 
we don't need to have the years and time and you know the effort to put through clinical processes and to put through double blind experimental testings and all that because people are suffering now and it could potentially help them most importantly in a pandemic right you've got to have all options available right. some will work some will not work i mean medicine is fairly complicated but the fda recognizes that so i have to disagree with that politician and then um you also have an article on favoring local action can you speak a little bit about how you believe that um, localities will be able to help? So when we're talking about pandemic responses, one of the big issues is how does COVID-19 affect different populations? So like I'm in North Dakota, you're in Montana, right? So the way COVID-19 is gonna spread and affect people in our, in our neck of the woods is gonna be very different from New Jersey, from New York, from Florida, which has a comparatively older demographic base. But that also means that you need a variety of approaches to figure out how is it spreading, how do we treat people, what parts of a local economy need to be shut down, what parts cannot be shut down, what parts of the demographics even need to be isolated versus, you know, have less of a risk of becoming infected and sick and dying. So those are all local questions. You can't really get that from national forecast trends, right, which a lot, of, a lot of the policies are all are based on, at least a lot of the policy recommendations are. And so I do believe that locally people can arrive at their own decisions and effectively do this. And in that article, I had two examples, one of which was going back to South Korea, which you, a lot of people seem to forget South Korea at one point was rivaling Italy as the country that was most devastated by COVID-19. Now it's one of, I think, two or three countries where they have more recoveries than new cases. And that's pretty remarkable, but South Korea refused to shut down its economy. Hmm. And so they took a very different approach than most developed nations are. And the reason they were able to figure out how to help their people and how to essentially get closer to flattening the curve was they said, we're not going to shut down private enterprise. We're going to let private enterprise find a way to help us. Hmm. What ended up working for them was private companies developing testing kits. So the first tests that were publicly available in South Korea happened about three weeks after the first case was confirmed. Okay. And that was just from businesses figuring out, okay, it's come it's spreading in China, right? Our neighbor, eventually it's going to make its way into South Korea. We need to have testing kits that are ready. And one company called C gene, I might be pronouncing that wrong. Sorry. said, we've got to get to work on this. They developed one within a couple of weeks. They got approval from their government in 10 days. I compare that to how long it would take us to get anything approved. And I mean, three or four weeks after that, they were distributing tests, or they actually tested over 230,000 people in South Korea just with that one testing kit. And then once you have the ability to test and figure out who is becoming sick, how is it spreading, where are the most infected areas, right? where do we predict outbreaks might happen, then you can engage in some kind of isolative or quarantine-like behavior, and that'll help you better address the pandemic. The other one was the example going way back nearly 100 years was Seattle during the Spanish flu. Right, the Spanish flu, most people think, was the worst pandemic in history with the exception of the bubonic plague. But the bubonic plague took 1,500 years, right? The Spanish flu happened over two years. <laughs> so it's hard to make those kind of comparisons. Yeah. But Seattle was unique in the sense that most of what Seattle did was decentralized. And by that, I mean schools voluntarily closed themselves down. In some areas, schools would have their local school board say, shut all the schools down. Others would say, nope, we're going to do case-by-case -case basis. Pretty much universally across Seattle, businesses said, okay, if you had, don't have a mask, you can't come into the store. A lot of public transit was shut down, so people had to find individual ways or you know, bargain with their neighbors ways to go out and get supplies and things like that. People voluntarily quarantined based upon where they were and how they were feeling. 
And that seems weird to allow a city at that time with 600,000 people, right? This is a fairly big city, especially for that time period. They only had 1,500 deaths, right? So when you track that data out, that's actually about a tenth of the global death rate. And that's significantly lower than like comparable cities in the United States, like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, which had a lot more public health efforts to close down massive spots of the cities, and they didn't fare as well. So it's hard to compare, you know, different eras and in different diseases, right? But when you look just historically at Seattle, that provides evidence that at least people are able to figure a lot of this out on their own. You did mention test kits right there. I believe just this last week, um, take-home test kits were approved. What delayed that for so long? Were there specific regulations or was it the approval process like we talked about? There's a couple of things. So I think the first and probably easiest one is that the FDA initially didn't allow private laboratories to develop testing kits. They had to use the one that was approved by the CDC, which is the one that was developed by the WHO. And we, we know now that WHO had a variety of problems with their testing kits. We had a very low supply to initially to begin with, so it was poorly prepared to be able to distribute tests across the country. Which, I mean, eventually the FDA did remove that barrier. and. And when they did two weeks later, we had tests available in five minutes, right. Right? thanks to private enterprise developing tests and being able to distribute them. So I think in, at least with regard to that, the ability to go from, you know, one test that you're allowed to use to laboratories being able to develop their own tests. I think that slowed down the process to where we can now do at home testing. The other one that not a lot of people are talking about is when COVID-19 first started to spread throughout Asia. A lot of the FDA inspectors who were supposed to go to foreign countries and inspect goods and make sure they're suitable for importation, they got sent home. Mm. So a lot of, not just COVID-19 tests, but a lot of drugs come from Asia. So when the inspectors go home, that means that drugs don't get stamped off on, for lack of a better word. They don't cross the borders. They don't come into the United States. And Asian countries already had at-home tests, right? South Korea had at-home tests. They were spreading those throughout the world. So the South Korean at-home test, or there was a variety of them, doesn't get into the United States initially because the FDA barriers won't allow it because they send their inspectors home. Mm. So I think there's a two-fold approach, right? One of which is just simply regulation delays advancement, right? They get from, you know, get to five-minute testing and at-home testing. The other one of which is if you don't allow entrepreneurs globally to solve the problem and bring their product to domestic markets, then you're kind of left waiting. You were also talking about other um, regulations in another article. Are there any regulations that you see as of now that still need to be cut that are delaying the process? There's a few. So I think broadly, and I am largely a critic of the FDA. If you go to FDAreview.com, you'll see a lot of my criticisms of current pharmaceutical policy. They've broadly done a pretty good job at loosening up restrictions on testing. They certainly have done. They've done some pretty good work on reducing restrictions to bring ventilators to market, They've done some good work, I think, on reducing international barriers to bringing masks into market. So medical masks was another issue that a lot of hospitals were facing shortages of. Couldn't get access to them. We're having makeshift masks. We're having to reuse disposable ones. Right, so healthcare providers get sick and right. they get sick. They can't treat patients, right? So that becomes a problem. Um, the two big ones, I think, are still sort of in the workings that need, the FDA should really focus on is one just trying to get rid of the barriers to medical masks they've done some of this whereas they'll take masks from australia and brazil and certain countries in europe they still won't take masks from china right china during the pandemic has become a big exporter of medical masks 
especially the, the 3M mask is probably the most popularized one. It's the one that blocks the most potential for COVID to get into your circular or your respiratory system. The other one, and this is a little bit sort of off the beaten path, it's not about a particular product. I think a lot of times when we have experimental medications, which grant emergency or granted through emergency access use, what you're allowed to say in medical journals and allowed to distribute information on doesn't change. It usually follows the typical off-label drug prescription requirements of what you can actually say and what you can't say. And I think that's problematic in the sense that we have fairly small cases coming in about people using these kinds and helping these patients, and that information doesn't get distributed easily. So it's entirely possible we have drugs that can be used off-label to help people with COVID-19, but we won't know for weeks or months because how information is being able to be disseminated is delayed. Mm. So it's highly restricted with regard to that. It's, it's actually even tougher to get information on off-label drug use from international countries. All right, so countries that have previously been hit harder, Italy, South Korea to some instance, Japan has a couple of drugs they think are beneficial in helping patients. Trying to get that information widespread in the United States faces a lot of barriers. So I think that's one that's one hasn't really been touched by the FDA yet. I think that's going to be pivotal in the next coming months to figure out, okay, well, if we really are a year and a half, two years behind away from a vaccine, what do we have at our disposal? And if information about that is restricted, right. we're kind of left in the dark on that. Now, is there any regulation that um, kind of puts a barrier to entry for certain people that are transitioning from certain resources, like if there's any market signals saying, hey, there's no more demand in your product. Is there any is there any regulation that kind of restricts them from moving over to that product to like masks or developing ventilators or something like that? Usually not with masks or ventilators because in those kind of markets, we already know what works. Mm. We know how effective you know this mask is compared to that mask. We know more or less how ventilators work. You're not trying to make a better ventilator at this point. You're just right. trying to figure out how to mass produce more you know, within certain regulatory guidelines. But in terms of trying to anticipate demand, it's tricky in the US healthcare system because those are usually bought by hospitals. Hospitals, because of a variety of regulations, aren't really a market. So they're more or less, like Andrew Cuomo, weeks and weeks ago said New York, New York needed about 30,000 ventilators, which is a huge amount of ventilators even for how hard New York is being hit. Right. And I mean, that's sort of guesswork, right? So when they say we need this many more ventilators, we don't really have a market price for a ventilator saying, okay, this is actually how the supply and demand will really work. Right. So the closer you can get to a market in those goods, the better. And the but at the same time, I just, we did have a lot of ventilators before. We never had a shortage of ventilators given the high regulatory state before. I think the real barrier, the real problem at least for the time being, is how do we bring ventilators to market? So you have that whole other set of regulations saying you need to go through these all approval processes to get a medical device, a ventilator in this case, to market. Right. And when those are let up, you at least have the ability to put them on the market. And then when prices develop from there, that depends on a variety of other deregulatory issues. But I think initially the biggest progress can be made by just getting some of these unnecessary bureaucratic steps to approval out of the way. Right. I hope that answers that question. Yeah. I mean, because that's one of the things that I found the most interesting is that, uh, especially with masks and ventilators towards the beginning, it was like there was no effective price system that allowed people to predict how much they would need. And the, the thing that I find interesting about that, though, is that the whole point of flattening the curve was to increase capacity and stuff like that. But if there isn't, if there isn't an effective price system, how do you do that? 
without just guessing. Well, I think we've seen the result of that, right? So you can flatten the curve. You can say expand the curve, right? Expand capacity of healthcare. You can even say business broadly, right? Higher prices means expands capacity. Right. When you don't have that, your alternative is to guess, right? Which some political figures have done, or to say, no, we don't know what the capacity should be. We just have to cut down on use, right? So shut down the economy, tell people not to go to work. And that's the choice we've made. I don't think it's necessarily a good trade-off. But that's sort of the difference between right public policy and government versus markets. Mm. If a business ran out of a product, they would never say send all the customers home and we have to cut hours, right? That would be the worst thing they could do. They would say find another way to get you know, more masks or more goods or whatever that would happen to be. But again, that's existing within the confines of a market. When you just have intervention, right, or government edict saying X or Y, then it's kind of guesswork and you're playing catch up. What are the specific um, regulations that kind of restrict those prices within ventilators or masks or something like that? A lot of them just sort of broadly come from the issues of providing for healthcare, healthcare services through a third payer system. So it's normally what it would work out as, as an induced demand. So we have a hospital, we have an outbreak of a respiratory disease like COVID-19. We need more beds in an intensive care unit, we need more ventilators, we need more sedatives to put people on ventilators on. And if that's the case, you would have prices rise in those markets and hospitals would buy them and telling you know drug producers and medical good manufacturers, okay, produce more of those goods. The issue is that hospitals don't compete on that basis. Hospitals, for the most part, through certificate of need problems, work together and decide, okay, how many hospital beds, how many ventilators, how much medical staff, and a variety of other things, right? And they all basically come together in somewhat of a cartel form to decide how much. The issue with that is if you come together and decide how many beds your competitor can have or what your competitor is allowed to provide, the incentive there is for everybody to provide the same amount of goods, right? It's sort of, I mean, literally sort of working together to increase prices as we learned in basic micro, right? And then sort of decrease services. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about at a hospital level, right? And that's where most of the ventilators are obviously are in hospitals but you have a certificate of need laws preventing hospitals from being adaptable to be able to say, increase X, cut back on Y, order more of these drugs. So broadly speaking, those are some of the, uh, those are the certificate of needs laws are broadly the issue that we're facing with in terms of hospital capacity, Okay. which is what, which is what flattened the curve is supposed to be based on. Right. Right. So you would think that they would try to get rid of those laws, but I mean, it's that engraved into the system. The fact that they are cartels. There might be a few more. I only know of one exception to that. So when you in Florida, the, where I'm actually from is Miami. So Miami, Florida had, at least for a previous for a certain amount of time, a fear that COVID-19 was spreading. It was going to overwhelm the healthcare system. Hospitals were going to hit capacity. And what they had was a nonprofit organization down there donated land and space mm. and worked with a Kentucky construction company. And they said, hospitals are going to hit capacity. We need space. Right, so we've got to be able to find a place to put excess capacity for people that have COVID-19. It's got to be isolated enough that we're not going to infect the rest of the hospital wards, if you will. Right. And they worked together and they built a 250 hospital bed facility. Wow. Now that had to happen from approval from the city council. But even there, right, that's saying, okay, get rid of the regulation, let people figure this out, and you did have a solution. Mm. Now, getting that approved at the state level as quickly as possible, that's going to be tricky, right? So Miami is not going to That'll help with that situation. That's not going to help with what's happening in New York or some of the other places that are particularly hard hit. But 
that is does provide an example saying, look, if you get rid of that, hospitals are capable of finding ways to expand capacity. Okay, sounds good. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I think we're, we're done here, but if you want to just tell people where they can find you and uh, we'll let you go. Absolutely, it's been a blast. So they can find my most recent work on COVID-19 and FDA regulations at fdareview.org. That's a project of the Independent Institute. Or they could Google North Dakota State University, Raymond March, and they'll find some of my other research. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. My pleasure. It's the week.